0: All right. It's OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am here with my guest, Chucky Reddy. He is a partner at QED Investors. He is a venture capitalist focused on fintech. Chucky, welcome to OK Computer. Thanks for having me. You know, it's funny. You and I have gotten to know each other over the last year since you become a VC. You have a storied career on the banking side. We're going to get into all that your name rolls off the tongue a little bit. You're also one of these guys that ever since I've gotten to know you, you always have a smile on your face. It could be like a really bad day in the market or whatever. You just, you're just you still happy, you're still in a good mood, and you're kind of like a fun guy to be out with after like a tough day in the market. Is that fair? Have you heard that before?
1: Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. I think it also helps that we both have drinks in our hands. Well,
0: alright. That that, <laughs> that, that that is actually, okay, fine. That's the root of it. But the other thing I was going to say is like you and I, recently we've had a few conversations like, this should be a podcast. I mean, I said that to you Like as yeah. We're, yeah. So absolutely. So here we are. We're podcasting. So I love it. It's my first podcast. Really? Yeah. Are you a listener of podcasts?
1: I have just started to do that. Really? It's I was late to the game.
0: What do you generally do? Do you do stuff like sports, entertainment, or are you into like stuff that relates to VC markets, that sort of stuff? It's been
1: primarily listening to podcasts and my other partners.
0: Okay, fair enough. And I want to get into QED because really interestingly, I've known of the firm. I know that they have a specific focus on fintech, which is probably one of the main reasons why you chose after 17 years at J.P. Morgan to join QED, founded by, what, some pioneers in fintech? I mean, these were personal finance people 30 years ago in the space,
1: correct? And yeah, then that's right. Yeah. And then yeah. just kind of morphing the whole way along started, what, Capital One Financial? That's right. So uh, Nigel Morris, co-founder founded Capital One. He's a co-founder of QED. Yeah, His co-founder of QED, Frank Rotman, was, in my opinion, the father of the subprime card business. Yeah. He was one of the first chief risk officers prior to that even being a role. So they were instrumental in building that business in the 90s. And both left in the mid-2000s to go on to do more interesting things around effectively creating the category of fintech.
0: Yeah. And again, we're going to talk about it from a disruption standpoint, from the idea of just here we're pretty well banked, but there's still plenty of stuff to do here. But just looking outside of our shores geographically, I know that you guys have recently made some investments in like Africa. You were telling me that the other day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Nigel's vision for the firm is to be a global firm and to make sure that we're helping the financial lives of everybody throughout the globe. He personally has a goal of trying to touch a billion lives. Um, wow. Sounds like Jack Dorsey. It. Yeah, exactly.
0: But Bitcoin doesn't fix that. <laughs> um, no, you got, you guys are doing it. Although,
1: Nigel's definitively
0: the opposite of Jack. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That was uh, sarcasm font needed there, Jack. Whenever you want to put that on Twitter, let us know. All right, let's do this, though, right now, because it's been a really funky market over the last, let's call it, year or so. And some of the areas that you guys are focused on at QED have actually saw this huge pull forward during the pandemic in 2020. And if you think about it through the lens of the stock market, we know, what some of the largest column fintech names did. I mean, at one point, PayPal had a greater market cap than Bank of America, I think, in early 2021. It's astounding. You were still a banker. You were still sitting in your seat at J.P. Morgan. You were a managing director in the ABS, the Asset-Backed Securities Group, running securitized products. When you were seeing stuff like that, it must have either gotten your antennas up wildly or was thinking about all of the opportunities that you had within your space to get really creative. I'm just curious, what yeah. was your mindset back then?
1: Yeah, I mean, we just couldn't believe it, right? Yeah. Anybody who actually did the math and knew anything about finance, knew it was a bubble. And something like a firm, which I absolutely love that company and the people that run it, but seeing that stock price run the way it did, yeah. it didn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah. And so seeing it crash back down to earth and really where it's trading today also doesn't make sense. Yeah. So that correction happened the wrong way both ways. It's probably somewhere in the middle. And there's still a lot to prove in that business. Yeah. And so we'll see where that goes. But absolutely, financial stocks were in their own bubble. And that bubble has definitively deflated. It's funny, you
0: mentioned a firm, and I guess things like buy now, pay later. I mean, these were like concepts that have been around for a long time. And the fact that for some reason, all of a sudden, it was treated as some new innovation because of the technology wrapper or however you want to do it, easy on-ramp or access at, at payment of sale, you know, whatever it was, all of a sudden, the narratives that were created were by maybe analysts, by investors. I think what's really important, we talk about this all the time on this podcast and on on the tape, sometimes it's not the banker's fault or it's not the company's fault. It's actually investors' fault, what they're willing to pay for something. Speak to me a little bit about that psychology when you're sitting in the seat from a banker's standpoint. Because, again, the company was probably not – issuing outlandish guidance for guidance that was getting analysts geeked up and having them raising their estimates and investors willing to pay more for what they were perceiving faster growth. It was just investors just running towards the hottest, shiniest little object.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think in any case, and we can talk a little bit more about what I went through in 2008, for example, the discipline really sits with the investors ultimately. And now sitting in an investing seat, that discipline has to sit with me. Or with our firm. And it's one of those things that if you don't have that or you get caught up with everything that's going on, it very much is that tool of mania feel yeah. to it. And that's what happened, I think, in many cases, right? In my career, we've had the tech bubble burst, and yeah. then we had the 08 bubble, as I referenced around subprime mortgage bonds. And again, it happened within oh, the we're last gonna, year. We're
0: going to get to that because on your resume, it says 17 years at J.P. Morgan. But Bear Stearns is how you got to J.P. Morgan. And again, that seat in 07, 08 must have been pretty fascinating. We'll definitely talk about that. But it's interesting on that point, and you said something that I say quite frequently, is that things that overshoot to the upside, they tend to do to the downside. So a lot of people are looking at a lot of these stocks in the public markets, fintech Names, how I know that's a really broad way to kind of describe them, they're down 70 or 80%. And these are things that went up 300, 400% off of their COVID lows, some more for that matter. And so, where's the bottom? How low can they go? Because multiples will overshoot also.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we all probably have the feeling that we're not at the bottom yet. And as far as the broader market is concerned, yeah. have we seen the bottom in fintech? Potentially. Yeah. You know, when you look at the valuations where they were sitting in April and what numbers these companies have produced since then. The growth rates are still quite strong. They're moving much more towards profitability. So I think we've generally put in the lows on FinTech, or at least we're pretty close to that. Yeah. What we haven't done yet, and you probably know a lot more because of your nature of investing in public equities, that the separation between the good and the bad names hasn't necessarily happened yet. Yeah. And so our hope is something like New Bank, which we were very early investors in, has absolutely fantastic numbers and results and has continued to post. Actually, my first boss, Yusuf, is effectively now running the day-to-day operations. And the core of that business is doing incredibly well. And so we're hopeful that that name, for example, will continue to produce results and that'll manifest itself in a longer-term fashion in the stock price. But that's something that just takes some time to ferret out.
0: So now in this seat, you just mentioned NewBank. So for instance, you have this thought that some of these companies probably took some pretty dramatic action to kind of rationalize costs and what they thought was going to be a sort of difficult environment estimates have come down so now you're thinking about okay you invest in this company very early when it was still private, obviously, you thought the secular shifts that were going to be these tailwinds for them. Sometimes, and over your career, have you found this in periods like this, this is where some companies actually find their groove in a way, and they find that kind of equilibrium between the cost structure and kind of what the opportunity is, and therefore, they'll kind of grow into their valuation again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're currently going through the cost-cutting cycle throughout every company. They're getting very generic advice from everybody. You got to cut costs. You got to cut costs. We're maniacally focused on unit economics mm-hmm. at QED, and so one of the things I've spent a lot of time doing in modeling is figuring out what OpEx makes sense at what amount of scale, and that's a place where we're super focused because if you can't get over the inflection point at a reasonable amount of scale, then you probably have a business that has flaws in it. That's starting to become clear where we need to focus energy at each of these companies.
0: Are you starting to see some companies, again, not ones that, let's say you invested, of course not QED, that literally are on the brink, that we have a period that where the over-exuberance as it relates to the build-out in this period where money was free, interest rates were really low, and cost of capital, obviously, was what it was. And when you have that situation, valuations are kind of getting extreme and companies start thinking that they can do no wrong, are we going to see it go the other way? Are we going to see some companies shut the doors, go out of business? I mean, does that have to happen before this whole period is kind of said and done.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a portfolio of companies and have been investing since 2008. You're at any given time going to have fatalities in yeah. these companies, right? If 25% of your portfolio ultimately is a zero, that happens with some regular distribution. Yeah. Now, that probably wasn't happening as frequently as you would have expected or as quickly. From, because of the interest rate. Because, the, the, well, because of the interest rate environment, which caused this yeah. amount of capital to come into yeah. the business. And also the outsized returns in venture attracted so much capital for so long. And there's been no washout event in the business for many years. We can talk about the history of venture a little bit. But ultimately, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg for what's being created by the pullback in funds. So many of these companies are still overfunded from when they took checks in in late last year. And so as a result, this cycle is actually going to take much longer to play out than people expect. So it's probably an 18-month cycle before everything fully gets repriced. It's a long road. We are at the very beginning of that. This was not going to be 2022. We wake up in 2023 and we feel good. But what it is is it's a very healthy process to start weeding things out of the system that didn't make sense. All right. So what happens, though, the billions
0: of dollars that were raised in 2021 that went into VC funds that need to be deployed? Because that's a really interesting juxtaposition here. You say there's a lot of companies that are overcapitalized. We know that there's a lot of companies who do want to raise cash, but they don't want to do it at a down
1: round relative to their last raise. It just seems like there's still a lot of cash in this system. Absolutely. There's cash in many forms, right? What you referenced is there's a ton tremendous amount of dry powder on the sidelines. To that extent, pretty interesting how venture capital seems to work. It's a little bit more of a groupthink mentality. And so what we've seen is people just slam on the brakes. And so while they have a lot of dry powder, they're literally putting none of it to work. To the extent that companies need capital and they're quality companies, mostly insider bridge rounds are getting done in order to just get the amount of capital in to get them to the next... Step. And whether that's the next series of funding or that's getting to the end of 2023, that's kind of the, again, standard advice that people are getting. And so that dry powder has not really gone anywhere. And for a venture cycle where you have three years to invest that money, you don't have any reason to be jumping on things per se. We've tried to invest through the cycle. You know, we're trying to look for companies that are high quality, regardless of whether it was last year or this year. So we've continued to invest capital, albeit at a slower pace than last year. But that dry powder, it's good that it's sitting on the sidelines if there's not a pricing that makes sense for them.
0: So let's take a step back. So I just said that you were at J.P. Morgan. You were in the securitized Products Group. And am I right to suggest that that seat at a large money center bank like J.P. is about as close to VC as you could get within a large financial institution like that?
1: Yeah. I mean I think I had a pretty unique seat within securitized Products. I ran our principal finance business which was taking the firm's balance sheet, doing interesting things with companies' capital structures, Mm -hmm. primarily focused on consumer finance companies originally, adding single family rental and some of the – what I call SFR 2.0 companies to the remit, but using our capital to replace some of the equity capital that would otherwise have been raised 10, 15 years ago. and To the extent that there was a strategic investment opportunity working with our corporate venture type groups to help put that capital to work as well. But more importantly, it was about outcomes for these companies. How do you inflect these companies from series B and C using this money center capital to help them grow into series D e and IPO-ready companies, and for the investment bank to take advantage of the fee pot that's associated with that. And so, yeah, I think to extent for a consumer finance person, yeah. Yeah. outside of being in a fintech VC, it was probably the closest seat.
0: How did it feel? Because Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan, has been really critical of fintech and really the lack of regulation around it. And really, we know where this is coming from. It's kind of like he sees the potential disruption coming from one of these startups. And it could be multiple startups taking different shots at different parts of this is the largest bank in the world. So I'm just curious how that meshed with some of the work that you were doing with some of these
1: companies. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think every time something like that were to come out, certainly didn't help. (laughs) <laughs> Our clients uh, feel good about us. But I think Jamie's points around regulatory arbitrage is, is kind of correct. I think the regulatory system in the US with respect to the way customers are ultimately treated or at least the products that can be offered to customers is not keeping up with the times. Mm-hmm. And so what the CFPB is really good at is saying, hey, like you didn't disclose this. You didn't tell the customer. And that's great. And somebody should be watching and mm-hmm. making sure the customer can understand what it, what it is. But when a bank like J.P. Morgan is really prevented from being able to go down into low FICO regions to help underserved customers, providing them either banking services or providing them credit services because the regulators tend to take a much more difficult eye towards a J.P. Morgan doing that, it leaves room for fintech staff to come in and fill that void and that's been fantastic. But it would be even better if the regulators were much more proactive about saying, hey, look, there's a big underserved population. How do we make sure all financial institutions have a roadmap to be able to serve them? And not be scared of regulatory scrutiny. Jamie Diamond is not a stranger to regulatory scrutiny. If you think
0: about just what the banks have been under since the financial crisis, when you think about who, as a VC, there's all sorts of different exits. There's just generally a couple that you're pretty focused on. Obviously, going public is one, and then strategic M and A is another. When you think about the regulatory overhang on mega cap tech stocks, for instance, Meta can't buy the next social app that's coming out. It's just not happening here. What do you think it looks like? Can some of these large banks, investment banks, money center banks, can they just go pluck some of these smaller fintechs? And will that be allowed, especially when they, the large incumbents see them as really massive disruptors?
1: Yeah. No, I think the banks, and J.P. Morgan in particular, has been quite acquisitive. And the trouble for the banks is really that some of these products do not fit their regulatory lens, number one. But number two, it's really the question about what size of entity can they actually purchase. They have regulatory constraints, and taking in a tremendous amount of goodwill will actually change their capital ratios. So it somewhat limits the actual purchase price somewhere from 300 million to upwards of a billion for the biggest banks. But let's call it 500-600 million for some of the mid regionals who could benefit the most. And that's a really difficult frame because if you're a company founder and you're tied to the valuation of that company that starts at 30 million to 70 million depending on if that's seed or an A where you raise capital upwards of 100-150 million, your return on that investment at 300 million is just not that great for having all the blood, sweat and tears put in to be able to exit there. Now many companies do find themselves to be very accretive to these franchises and they can drive a tremendous amount of value particularly at some of these smaller banks where I think that the stock that they get will actually benefit greatly and there's more return for them. But that's really the constraints I think on why banks are maybe not going to be the biggest acquirers going forward. All right. So give us a little inside scoop here. So
0: you were at J.P. Morgan for a long time and you were obviously a bear before that. And so you saw him presiding over this acquisition in early 08. I mean, this is really before alarm bells were going off in the global financial universe here. But Bear Stearns went under in March of 2008, and JP Morgan came in and bought them for $2 a share initially, and then they just had to recut it at 10 I think history will show that it was just a bargain. I mean, they got big pieces of a great, venerable Wall Street bank. They were able to get rid of some of the biggest problems as far as their portfolio lending and stuff like that. So, Talk to me a little bit about Jamie Dimon. He's kind of like sits up here. If there was like Mount Rushmore of bankers, there would have been J.P. Morgan and just Jamie Dimon now. Like there's nobody in between. What about the lore of Jamie Dimon?
1: People ask me this question all the time and I've had some interactions with him over the years. He is the most straightforward person you'll ever meet. There is literally no BS when it comes to him. The thing I would say about him is that he's incredibly intelligent and he's really dialed in in the weeds. Mm -hmm. I mean he runs a bank – if you think about each of the divisions of the bank, their investment bank is the same size as Goldman and he runs a consumer bank that's the size of another huge consumer franchise. Then he runs his big asset management arm and then that doesn't even count wholesale services and all the other institutional custodial products that he's running. So in many ways, he's actually – if you look at peer institutions, he's running five of those. But his knowledge of each of the businesses is down to the molecular level. And that's something that I was always super impressed by when he would call my boss or my boss's boss Mm -hmm. and have a mastery of that topic. And he's really good at ingesting information and quickly making a decision and a definitive decision.
0: Has that changed? Because I think back to about a decade ago when they had that situation in the CIO's office in London. Remember the London whale? Oh, I remember. And he originally called it a tempest in a teapot. And then he quickly reversed course. And so he was basically dismissing it as some thing that had the potential to kind of bubble up and have broader implications outside of just this group. And I remember thinking back at the time, man, that seemed like a really glib, especially as we're in the wake of the financial crisis, as we had a rolling Debt crisis throughout Europe, and this was in London. So, was it he just didn't see it and it was just glib? And then he did change his tune kind of quickly. And then, how you just described him is how most people who know of how he runs that bank or knows him personally that's how they speak of him. But maybe it was just a moment in time where it just got away from him.
1: I was not obviously on the ground or involved in that situation. However, I did work with some of the folks in the CIO's office in London. I would have described some of their attitudes to be cavalier in the London office versus the folks in New York at times. However, that was a risk-taking mentality that was in that ethos. Again, very different between the New York and London offices. And Ultimately, if you recall, the head of that unit got fired and there was a clawback that was initiated. I'm not sure what ended up happening there. But ultimately, he trusts his managers and so there is a culpability. If you trust the manager. They have to be what minding the store and that was an example where it felt like maybe that was partly not the case. But more importantly, I think he probably made that comment before the position had ballooned the way it did. If you recall on the other side, the other hedge funds, once they figured out there might be a problem, they very quickly moved to explode the position and you know how that goes when there's a short squeeze. So that's exactly where I think it probably was contained. He was reported to that it was contained and it showed up on his risk report as contained. Within days,
0: it was probably, you know, much larger. seemed like a very Goldman thing to do as far as exploding the position. We yeah. Know. There's, and, there's and, a lot of stories of them yeah. kind of getting an inside look on something like that and not helping out one of their peers.
1: I can't speculate there, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I will say, like, as a trader, that's the type of tail risk you're supposed to obviously worry about. Yeah. And so, shame on the trader. Yeah. You never want to get to a place where somebody can put your back against a wall. No doubt. All right. Last thing on Diamond. And what's important
0: to me about this is that, again, he's the CEO with probably the longest tenure of any U.S. bank at this point as CEO, largest bank, $300 billion market cap. It's down 35% on the year. So, the S&P is down 24% on the year. So, we could all agree that there was really nothing – and we think about this bear market that we're in and this economy that we're in that's kind of pre-recessionary feels a bit recessionary, but we don't have an official recession. Why would a bank like JP Morgan be underperforming the S&P 500 to the downside? It's actually led the entire year. The S&P was trading at an all-time high on January 2nd or 3rd, and JP's all-time high was made last October the stock at least, started trending lower before the market did and now it's outperformed to the downside. There's a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. In early June, Jamie made some comments about an economic storm that's coming or a hurricane or something like that. And they reported their Q2 in mid-July. It wasn't great. The guidance was a little murky. And then just This week, he sat down with a reporter in CNBC in Europe, which I thought was kind of curious. And this is days before they're going to report their Q3. And he's talking about a whole host of things, the economy. But he also referenced the stock market, where he said that things are about to get bad and they could see the stock market go down 20%, which I thought was really interesting. I guess more importantly is what he said was that next 1% higher in Fed funds, right now we're just above 3%. CME Fed funds tracker is projecting a 75 basis point hike, which would be their fourth consecutive in four meetings when they meet on November 2nd. So, we're going to get to 4% and then just Fed fund futures are pricing 4.5% by early next year. He's saying that next 1% is going to be really painful. So, two questions for you. He seems to be a bit chatty before he Reports as quarters, which I think is interesting. And you'd be a fool not to pay attention to him. Okay, that's one. And the other point is why would he talk about the stock market?
1: Yeah. So let's start where you started that frame of thinking around JP Morgan's stock price. My thesis around that is that it had exceeded two times book value. And historically, whenever financials go that far, they're overextended and they're probably likely due to a trade down. And I don't know what the correlation or causation around recession is around that, but and how long they can stay at that peak. So I think the stock has obviously had to correct for that. I think the market tends to correct for believing that there's big reserves coming and losses coming in credit books. And to some degree, like the trading business has been off this year, mm-hmm. and/or the investment banking mm-hmm. fee business. And then more importantly, banks have not been immune from an OpEx perspective mm-hmm. to the salary and wage increases. And so I think the CFO had kind of warned that OPEX was going to become a bit of a problem. And so the stock price had been pricing in cuts to OPEX, not an increased OPEX. And so if your number one resource is humans, of course, then you need to make sure that they're compensated properly. And that just costs a lot of money in cases like this. So I think he's absolutely correct about the next 100 basis points on the Fed funds rate. And in my career, whenever the Fed funds rate has gotten above 5%, like the whole thing tipped over we are on this continuum and each additional 100 basis points is going to be geometrically difficult because different asset returns are set up at different levels and so what a life insurer needs is a fixed amount of yield and so if you start to surpass that it starts to change the ebb and flow of the markets and on the flip side people that are paying for things like people that borrow money that starts to really become much more painful in again a geometric way it isn't quite linear that's something that's pretty interesting and I think he has enough data points to be able to understand even, in fact, what each 100 basis point move yeah. means. So when you were just mentioning that, and you're talking
0: about really the plumbing of the financial system and the way pension funds invest and where they park their money and all that. But what about for consumers? Because he's got this tremendous look into yeah. consumers, what you think about in consumer lending. And is he speaking to that to some degree, do you think?
1: Yeah, to, to some degree. I mean, he's probably has a pretty good finger on the pulse around what amount of your daily income goes to certain components. They have probably one of the best databases in the world of what people are spending on and spending habits and trends, albeit much more at the prime customer level. They don't maybe have as much insight into what's happening to lower income individuals or people with impaired credit scores. But he absolutely has a tremendous amount of information to look at and and sift through. But he's also very intuitive having been an actual banker on the ground for this long. He's not some pie in the sky investment banker that thinks they understand how the world works. He's very much in the weeds, like I said, understanding what's going on at the consumer level and how that translates to the economy.
0: One other point here. So on the consumer, and again, we know that two thirds of our GDP is consumer. And we also know that, again, the savings from the pandemic have basically been depleted. Now, we know that there's been some wage increases, but they have not kept up with inflation. When you look at food, fuel, rents, they're just kind of going off the charts here a little bit. They're coming in on some levels. We're seeing fuel come in a little bit. The last piece of the puzzle and what the Fed is really trying to do here by their efforts to kind of raise interest rates and tame inflation is also bring unemployment up. And so I wonder if they are successful in that. We're at 3.5%. It just ticked down in September. If they're successful in that, I wonder how quickly that will push us into a recession. And I wonder if that's what Jamie is also suggesting. That's kind of the missing piece of the puzzle
1: here. I think there's a lot in what you just said. What I'd say about the data and a recession is that, from my perspective, we started seeing a lot of this much earlier than I think the data is suggesting. Mm -hmm. And I'll come back to that in a second. But ultimately the data is way lagged. And so I think the hardest thing for me watching the Fed do what they're doing is they started so late because their data was lagged and now they're going to end really late because their data is so lagged. Mm -hmm. And then they're kind of on the run. And I don't really understand why the data is not showing some of the things we've seen. For example, we knew in March that there was demand destruction was already underway. Mm -hmm. We have a company, Wayflyer, that actually gives loans to merchants on Amazon, for example. I was getting phone calls from my friends in CMBS land saying, hey, we're hearing Amazon is putting out subleasing on some of their warehouse space. Now Andy Jassy has now come out and said, hey, we had to prepare. We had no idea which way things were going to break. So we got out a lot of extra warehouse space. We hired a lot of extra people. And by the way, they were the marginal bit on labor. Mm -hmm. They were pushing the labor up quite a bit in cost. And now they're reverse course. But they started seeing that demand go down and inventories build in March and April. And so here we are in October, and that really hasn't shown up in the data in a material way. That's just one vector. We obviously watch gas prices go up and down. Mm -hmm. We know that it's a long input into so many things, but we really haven't seen the gas price impact of what happened over the summer of coming down really show up in the data. yet. Mm -hmm. So it's really a question now of like, if you're the Fed, how do you time this better? And I think that's actually a good way for them to restore credibility is to say, hey, we actually saw something ahead of time and we got in front of it rather than reacting to data. And I understand they're in a very difficult situation that they have to point to something to say that's what my decision was based on and it can't be a finger in the air or a feeling. And so it's very hard to time and judge how much of this impact has already happened.
0: Yeah. No, and I think a lot of investors, economists, strategists are pretty well convinced that they'll probably overstay their welcome on the tightening side of it, just as they did on the on the. – they're taking their dovish stance in 2020 and 2021. All, All right. right. Last one on Jamie, I promise. So then the stock market. Why did he mention that? I just thought that was really curious. Like,
1: Yeah. I mean, look, I think Jamie likes giving guidance. He forms an opinion and he's willing to share a view. So we'd get from the management committee on down, hey, this is kind of the house view. Mm-hmm. It wasn't always Jamie's view. It could have been the president's view or mm-hmm. the head of the investment bank or whoever it might be. But you need to take a view because you need to have some perspective based on some information and data on what might happen in order to be able to run the business, again, ahead of time rather than reactively. Yeah. And I think that's something that he's really good at because of what he really ingests from the tremendous amount of information that he's seeing. That access that I had to information in that seat was amazing. Yeah. I mean, picking up the phone and being able to call anybody across yeah. the organization who was the expert in that thing was really powerful. Yeah. And I think that's what really they get from being such a scale player.
0: Well, you know what's interesting? So just last point on this. If he said it could easily be down 20 percent, if you look at the S&P 500, 3,600, it's down about 25 percent on the year. We're starting to see some strategists publish their 2023 or republish or lower, I guess, 2023 earnings estimates for the S&P. Bank of America just said $200. And if you think about where the S&P generally troughs on a multiple basis – in a recession, bear market, it's like 14 times. So you do 14 times 200, that gets you to 2,800. And if you take 3,600 minus 20, you get it down 20% or so, which makes sense, okay? So he's using math.
1: Right. I think he's using math. I'm sure he's got a view as to what... Will happen with earnings. What will happen with rates? I mean, I don't think there's one vector he yeah. doesn't have a view yeah. on. He probably could even tell you what he thinks some of the commodity prices. Well, make. the next time you come on, we'll have Jamie come on. Then, we'll,
0: <laughs> then, then we could talk less about him with you. Dan, you're about 10 months into the row body program. You look great. It looks to be maintenance now. Congratulations. Give us an update. Yeah, well, I feel great, too. So when I think about what I set out to do, I was looking to take about 15% of my body weight off through the row body program, and I've done that now. So now it is about maintenance. It is about nutrition. It is about exercise. It's about better sleep and really better habits here. So I can do this all in the app on the Rode Body program here and I'm really looking forward to actually taking these new behaviors into 2024 because I am feeling a lot better. Well, it's clearly working, Dan, and congratulations. And folks, if you're interested in learning more, go to road.co/ok. You'll pay just $99 for the first month and $145 per month thereafter. If prescribed, medication cost is separate. That's row.co slash OKAY. All right. You just mentioned something when you think about the inputs that you're getting on the consumer. You have all of these portfolio companies. How many at QED? Uh, We've
1: invested in about 200, about 130 are active.
0: And you think about you and your partners, you're on the boards of these companies, you're helping them manage during a really difficult time now, and you're seeing all these sorts of different inputs or challenges that they're facing. Talk to me about like, where do you think a lot of these companies, are they as focused on the macro as people like us who podcast or, or on CNBC or when you guys are in your partner's meeting, you're talking about, you're trying to get that top-down view about the environment we're in, or, or generally a lot of these portfolio companies, their managements, they're just kind of heads down and doing the thing that they're charged with doing?
1: Yeah. So I would say internally, I think of what Nigel Morris and Frank Rotman are doing, they think incredibly long and hard about mm-hmm. the macro, mm-hmm. and I think as they steer the firm, That's something that they are spending a lot of time thinking about and that informs, I think, the ground-level decisions that me and my partners are making Mm -hmm. around individual investment decisions. However, we're playing a long-term game Mm -hmm. and so like it isn't as impactful to us obviously as an investment firm that has a three- to five-year horizon in our growth fund Mm -hmm. that I work on primarily and a seven-plus-year horizon on our Mm early-stage fund. Market cycles don't matter as much as long as you have resilient businesses with good unit economics and can weather the storm when interest rate cycles change and credit losses change and things of that nature. When it comes to the individual companies, I think there's a big gradient of our founders Mm -hmm. as far as how tuned they are to the markets. Many of them are building a company at a very early stage where the market factors are actually not that relevant because they're trying to test for product market fit. They're trying to figure out... With a very small base of customers, do people like this? Will people actually eat the dog food? And so that's a place where I think the macro impact is actually so minimal, all the way up to people that are in the later stages, which are now really starting to think about exit Mm -hmm. and liquidity for their shareholders. And more importantly, they're running very large franchises. So here, wages make a huge impact to them. You move the needle from 5% wage increase to 10%, all of a sudden that's a pretty big material change to their margins. So I think the macro impact for those larger companies or later stage companies is being felt and I think that's where the transition is happening where people, CEOs and founders are having to go from not worrying about it to thinking about it in a way that's very different. The other thing I'll say because we have a lot of financial companies Mm -hmm. is a lot of people are caught short with the rate move and myself included. I would have never told you the tenure would have moved so violently Mm -hmm. having been an avid watcher of the tenure (laughs) and researcher of the tenure for so long. But it did move very violently. And we got caught on hedges in some cases. Mm -hmm. And so there were many companies that were too small to hedge, of course. And so I don't think there was much that we could do. But it really impacted the income statements of many companies. And while that's a point in time and we can fix it, and largely what we did is stay short duration Mm in the lending products that we work on, that was a perfect example of something that you didn't expect to happen and nor was any business really built to inherit that big of a move. In Brazil, for example, the benchmark rate from from 3% to 13%. That's something that is a violent, violent move. Yeah.
0: Well, I think from basically zero in Fed funds to what's going to be 4% in just a couple of weeks. I mean, we haven't seen that sort of move in 40 years. And that was over a bigger number too. When you think about when that happened, I think it was from like high single digits to low teens in the early 80s or something like that. So it's a great way to think about how investors of all sorts in public and private markets, they just got lulled into this kind of zero rate environment, easy monetary policy. And until they got smacked in the face, no one took it particularly seriously.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, you and I have been in the markets about the same amount of time. And people – by the time a recession hits or by the time there's a trade down, people have completely mm-hmm. fell asleep at the switch. And they're, like you said, lulled to sleep. They've stopped thinking about risk. They only think about the upside in yeah. those cases. And it happens time and time again. And we were an incredibly long bull market here. A lot of people entered the space in the market that weren't here in 2008. They were either in college or high school or even in some cases earlier than that. And so that's been a fundamental shift that I think it's very healthy to have these trade down cycles. I think what's happening right now is actually quite frankly weirdly good for the economy. It's very bad for part of the economy where what you talked about and wages being kind of flat and food and energy being Mm -hmm. so expensive where a household that's 80% of their income inclusive of rent. That starts to become really quite sad that we ended up in this status in the way it's shifted so quickly. Ned for the financial markets, this is a really healthy period of time to sort out things that didn't make sense.
0: Yeah. So going back to, we just mentioned that you were at Bear during the financial crisis, you got bought by JP, and we just talked about whatever thing that we're in right now, it doesn't even feel that bad. I don't know. Is DEF CON 5 the worst or DEF CON 1 the worst? What, what's the worst? Dude, you know? I think it's DEF CON 1. OK. So it feels like we're DEF CON 3.5. Just because the stock market's down 25%, it shouldn't be hair and fire. The S&P was up 28% last year. You know what I'm saying? So we're actually kind of correcting some of the ills. And again, you started off this whole conversation by saying anybody who's been around for a while knew the lunacy of 2021. And it just was. Think about how we started the year. In January, I think we did more SPAC volume than we had done the entire prior year. In Q1 of 2021, we did more SPAC volume than the prior, like five or 10, you know what I mean? And we had people selling for $69 million. We had NFT volumes going crazy. We had Bitcoin at 69000 We had Coinbase trading at whatever, $100 billion. I mean, it was just insanity all over the place. And so here we are now. A lot of that stuff has been correcting well longer than the S&P 500 is correcting. And now, you mentioned this earlier also, we haven't really seen any issues as it relates to credit yet. Go back to your financial crisis mind sitting at a place that could have easily gone under. I mean, Lehman did go under six months later or something like that. Is there anything out there right now that has your antennas up thinking back to where you were 12, 13 years ago and learning what you learned from the financial crisis being in an
1: institution like that? That's a really great question. I mean I think I'm now after it happening enough times just like waiting for shoes to drop. Yeah. If you asked me in April, I was starting to feel like the crypto market could have easily tripped into that. You know, like it,
0: you thought there was potentially systemic risk due to leverage or due to one of these stable coins yeah. breaking or something
1: like that? I mean, I think there was systemic yeah. problems in that. It was, fortunately, it was self-contained in crypto, and that kind of was its own ecosystem. But I think it was systemic. Ultimately, if it wasn't for FTX, you might have a very different outcome today. Which,
0: just you know a footnote here, and we'll talk about it in another pod. I mean, there's no way this SPF, STX thing, like he's the savior of the crypto markets. like
1: something funky has got to be going on there. But. Well. Either way, I think if they had the next shoe to fall was potentially the prime broker within that ecosystem, that would have felt like the Lehman moment, if you will, and I definitely started making that reference in April. That didn't ultimately prove out, and that partly didn't prove out because there was so much capital in that system Mm -hmm. that had been sitting on the sidelines that could be foisted in. Mm -hmm. That, and there's a genuine belief that you hold in that market. Mm -hmm. But that market's somewhat irrelevant to what everyday life is like. Mm I would say that the reason the economy, why it doesn't feel that bad to you or I is because unemployment is where it is. Mm-hmm. and So I think that has been super critical throughout my entire life. When unemployment felt very high in the 80s, people didn't have jobs, mm-hmm. crime goes up, people feel terrible about what's going on with mm-hmm. their neighbors and their friends and their family. Making sure that we have good employment and quality employment too is really important from a public policy perspective, but also just the way we feel on a day-to-day basis. and. The stock market should not be the arbiter of like what the economy should feel like to you per se, but this is a situation where if you think about what could happen, ultimately I think the credit markets are always the big harbinger. and So the credit markets are the leading indicator of like how bad things are going to be. So far the credit markets have been fairly orderly in the way they've operated. Mm -hmm with the exception of maybe the mortgage market, which the spreads are at all time wides, and that's largely driven by what's happening from a QT perspective. But I still think that there's an opportunity for there to be a deleveraging event in one of the credit markets. Now, I don't think it will probably happen, but there is definitely an increasing risk of that. And if that happens, it's a really interesting question, what will the Fed do? As you know, since 2008, we know exactly what they're going to do. The Fed's playbook has been a a total open the wallet. But but, but
0: it's funny, Jeffrey Gunlock at Double Line, I think he tweeted this a couple weeks ago. He actually pointed to an ETF that like 98% of investors have no idea what it is the LQT, the iShares, iBox investment grade. Corporate bond ETF. And he highlighted the fact that it is trading below its lows during the pandemic in Q1, Q2 of 2020, when we were clearly in a black hole. No one knew. I mean, there were obviously forecasts that we could have had. Credit events all over the place. That's why the Fed flooded the zone, right? With yep. monetary and yep. then all this fiscal that we had from Congress. So, when you think about the fact that the investment gate corporate bond ETF is down 22% on the year
1: and the SP is down 25% on the year, yeah. isn't it signaling something? Well, I mean, that ETF, my guess is, has mm-hmm. some duration to it. So, yeah. the, the actual base rate is part of that move. Be curious to see how much of it is base rate versus spread. And in March of 2020, IGCDX moved from 70 to 140 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the Fed installed the put quickly because they didn't really know what to do and they didn't know what was going to happen because mm-hmm. it was an unprecedented situation and they didn't want to have to dig out of a hole. Now, remember in 2008, the longest poll that they had to dig themselves out of was people's underwater home equity. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge overhang for a very, very long time and took a long time to unwind it's probably why they were so accommodative for so long, you know, to encourage house prices to grow. This time around, I think you have to figure out if you're the Fed, while you're trying to raise rates, while you're trying to pull money out of the system, can you actually put a Fed put in for IG credit, which feels to me like that doesn't make a whole lot of sense or high yield credit, which is like kind of like a bailout for LBA.
0: Yeah, but they were buying those ETFs actually to give optical support. This was during right. twenty twenty. Right.
1: Because that's where the liquidity was coming out of the system. Yeah. And so that's what they're trying to do is make sure there's an operation of orderly liquidation if that needs to happen. And I think that is – I don't know if that's part of their mandate per se, but it obviously is something that's a band-aid that they can apply. I'll
0: tell you one thing, man, just talking to you for the last 45 minutes, the companies that you sit on the boards of and advise. And I think when I look at the pedigree of all of your partners at QED, you're all former operators for the most part. I think those portfolio companies are very lucky in times like this to have guys and gals like you to be able to help them through this thing. Because, again, you said this a couple of times during this conversation. This is complicated stuff. And you happen to be focused in a part of the tech ecosystem that's a lot more complicated than making some social picture app or something like that, right? I mean- yeah. it, Although it, I still wish I owned a bunch of monkey
1: JPEGs, but-
0: <laughs> no, no. All right. Do you guys have, speaking hard pivot to crypto or do you guys have a house view on crypto?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we formed a house view per se. I can tell you we haven't participated in tokens thus far. Have not. Uh, have not. Yeah. We've largely stuck to picks and shovels in the mm-hmm. ecosystem, things we understand, utilities, if you will, mm-hmm. so far. And we have Bitso in Mexico, which is the Coinbase of Mexico, Shakepay in Canada, which is kind of like a neobank. And we have some companies that have some crypto things going on under the covers. And when I talk about crypto, what I really feel like it is is the technology. And I think that's where our house view starts to become important, which is that this technology is not going away. This technology is there to reduce friction in the system. Mm-hmm. And actually, FinTech in general, the ethos of FinTech is to reduce friction in the system, make things cheaper, make things easier, include more customers. And so to the extent that we can use this technology within even the companies we have today, if not all the companies that are coming in the future, we have to be, as you said, we're operators and we are trying to give the best advice given anywhere. We have to know what this technology is. We need to know how to use it. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to tell our companies where we think it could be helpful. Mm -hmm. It's up to them to take the advice, of course. but. I think it's coming very quickly. I think it's something that everybody, regardless of what part of the financial ecosystem you're in, have to really understand it and you have to be ready to embrace it.
0: I saw this on TechCrunch today. Charlie D'Amelio endorsed FinTech Step, borrows $300 million to bring crypto to kids. Now it said borrows. Isn't that fascinating? And I didn't even click through it because you don't even know who Charlie D'Amelio is. I do because I have teenage daughters. She was like, TikTok famous during the pandemic. She's like
1: like a venture fund now. Okay, so you know who she is. Well, I don't know her, but if she wants to invest in fintech, she should call us. But isn't that interesting? It says fintech step borrows and we're going to have to read into that.
0: But again, do we really need crypto for kids? I don't know. I just thought that was kind of a funny headline. Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, like kids is an interesting application. So if you believe that you're going to be, instead of typing in your 10,000th password reset, you're going to be logging in with an NFT wallet to set of credentials going forward. Then maybe it's good for kids, right? It's yeah. good for kids to be able to keep all their things in one place. There's technologies that could be relevant. But yes, does a kid need to be trading Bitcoin? No, but they probably don't need to be trading Bitcoin the same way they don't need to be trading 10 year Treasury ultras.
0: Right. So, so and, and again, you probably thought as being a little cynical as a former securitized product guy at a bank. I mean, so that financing for private companies, we're hearing it more and more.
1: Thoughts on that? It's a double edged sword. So, I think. In the cases in which you can raise equity because you're a quality company, Mm -hmm. that's probably the preferred route in earlier stages of the company. As the company matures and it becomes more known what the vectors and the outcomes are going to be, it becomes more relevant to get debt or if you have actual assets. So, In the case of one of our portfolio companies, Wander, we've talked about before I know over some drinks, which is a great company, for example, there we're working with a world class investment bank to provide financing directly on the homes. And so that's a place where it makes a tremendous amount of sense to take on the debt. And I think we try to make sure that CEOs understand what the upside and the downside of taking debt is. While it is cheaper, it obviously comes with some handcuffs. And as long as CEO and founders feel very comfortable with their numbers, very comfortable with being able to hit milestones, Mm -hmm. the debt will be – useful rather than company yeah, blow up yeah, risk yeah. or, oh, you know, yeah. hugely expensive. Yeah, over time. Yeah, exactly. But the blow up risk is really the problem. Yeah. All right. Last thing, again,
0: a little more than a year as a VC, you've had this nice long career on the banking side. Give it to me. What's it been like?
1: <laughs> What's it been like? Well, it's been great to rejoin some of my old Capital One colleagues. That's been fantastic, and I love my partners, and I think the firm I joined was was a great home. It's a pretty cool bookend.
0: You started at Capital One Financial, what, right out of college in the mid-'90s?
1: Yeah, Bill Salufo, one of our main partners who runs our early-stage investing, Mm -hmm. he came to the University of Virginia and interviewed me when I was 17 years old, and it's crazy. I mean, I got the job. I owe my entire career to that moment when he gave me a job as an intern. Um, what were you, like I, Doogie Howser or something, 17 years old in college? What you know, going on? my dad put me ahead of kindergarten. I skipped kindergarten, <laughs> so I don't know if that counts. Right, so I he was be, really smart. We skipped my last year in high school. Anyway, long story. <laughs> and over the summer, I met uh, Nigel and Frank. So that kind of rounds out our management committee. In fact, I actually sat outside Tommy Blanchard's office, who's our COO, who joined after I did. So it's crazy to think, I'm now 41. I joined when I was 40, that I knew these people for 22 wow. years. Hopefully this is my last job, but yeah, to start my career and end my career with people I have so much respect for is really cool and very personally fulfilling. So that's been great without question. I think the companies and the founders is something that drives all of us in this business. And I'm literally working with a 24-year-old who's – it's his third startup. So John Andrew Whistle, if you listen to this podcast, I'm talking about you. He's absolutely incredible. 24. Like when I was 24, I was – trying to figure out where's my career going in the next year and how do I get paid $10,000 more. Yeah. He's trying to build a world class company. Yeah. you know That's really impressive. The median founder age I found is probably in the late 20s to early 30s. It's really impressive what people are doing and taking that risk and putting themselves through a very grueling process in which the vast majority of people do not make it. Yeah. So we're talking about a 90 plus percent ultimate rate of not getting to those billion dollar outcomes or those big outcomes. I actually don't quite know that statistic. But I will say that it's a lot of work. One of the things I think we try to pride ourselves in, as you mentioned, as operators, is spending so much time with the companies. We think that changes outcomes. We think that kinks the curve. That We think that makes us generate alpha using our knowledge rather than just the initial investment decision, which we do our best to do it right there, but kinking the curve is really important. And that's just a lot of work. And so I will tell you that I thought I was definitely going to have an easier life and an easier job, and it's been a lot more work. But certainly very rewarding to do it with people that immediately give you feedback saying like that was really helpful or you were wrong and I was right or whatever it is. Like it's great because you have that rapport with people and it's just been really interesting gotten to meet guys like you through this process. I mean, I'm really thankful for that.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, listen, you know, I imagine it's been re-energizing. You had this nice long stint. You probably did as much as you could probably do within that group there within a big bank. And the idea of going to the other side and really kind of rolling your sleeves up and really helping people solve big problems and you guys are going after companies and founders who are looking to do that within the financial space. So listen, Chucky, Reddy, ready? I really enjoyed this conversation. I've enjoyed meeting you over the last year. Shout out to my friends at CSSPG for making the intro, but also, you know, getting to know your firm and the companies you're invested in and just kind of the ethos of your firm has been pretty interesting for me also. So thanks a lot. I hope you come back.
1: Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I love being here. Thanks so much.